0: Bibles, please, for our second reading, and we'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 1. Here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. When the Lord thy God hath cut off the nations whose land the Lord thy God giveth thee, and thou succeedest them, and dwell in their cities and in their houses, thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Thou shalt prepare thee a way, And divide the coasts of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to inherit, into three parts, that every slayer may flee thither. And this is the case of the slayer, which shall flee thither that he may live, whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hath hated not in time past. As when a man goeth into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetcheth a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree. And the head slippeth from the helve, and lighteth upon his neighbor that he die. He shall flee unto one of those cities and live. Lest the avenger of the blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot and overtake him because the way is long and slay him whereas he was not worthy of death inasmuch as he hated him not in time past. Wherefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt separate three cities for thee. And if the Lord thy God enlarge thy coast, as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, and give thee all the land which he promised to give unto thy fathers, if thou shalt keep all these commandments to do them which I command thee this day, to love the Lord thy God and to walk ever in his ways, then... "'Shalt thou add three cities more for thee, beside these three, "'that innocent blood be not shed in thy land, "'which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, "'and so blood be upon thee. "'But if any man hate his neighbor, and lie in wait for him, "'and rise up against him, and smite him mortally that he die, "'and fleeth into one of these cities,' Then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him thence, and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with thee. <clears throat> thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is, shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness, and and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put away the evil from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, (coughs) excuse me, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So in chapter 19 here, we begin a section which in in chapters 19, 20, and 21 have a lot to do with uh, several of the commandments, but it seems that there may be a greater emphasis upon the sixth commandment in these three chapters than there are in others, although not exclusively. It, you know, um, it's it's difficult. Men over the centuries have sought to to uh, outline the book of Deuteronomy and for many they have found it simply nearly impossible to do because Moses does tend to jump around a little bit and I'm sure he has reasoning, divine reasoning, spiritual reasoning for doing that. We don't know exactly uh, why there are uh, sections of say Sixth Commandment legislation that is suddenly interrupted with maybe an Eighth Commandment thing and then back to the Sixth Commandment or so on. Although, one thing that we can say for sure is that every one of the commandments of God are interrelated one to another. Like James will tell us, right? The moral law is a unit. If you break one command, you break all. For instance, in this chapter, we have the statement about landmarks. Now, we might think of landmarks as being an eighth commandment thing. You're stealing land, right? You move a boundary, right? You move it towards your neighbor's house and away from your own, and what do you get? You get more land. Well, that not only strikes at your neighbor's property, but if his land is that by which he earns his living, that strikes against him in his life as well, doesn't it? There's a relationship there, in other words. And some of our, our human uh, predilection toward categorization and taxonomy, sometimes that's not exactly fitting, right? Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and look at chapter 19. And we have this statement, first of all, with regard to uh, putting away the nations that are in Canaan land and then developing three cities that we're going to call cities of refuge. <coughs> cities of refuge are really statements of wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful statements of God's justice. That God sees all um, what we might call either accidental or intentional killing, as tragic, a strike at his own image, and there are consequences to be to be undertaken for each of those things. Uh, today we call it manslaughter, um, accidental manslaughter. Now we we have different categories of manslaughter today. Sometimes we'll talk about uh, negligent manslaughter. Right? What is negligent manslaughter? That means you didn't mean to kill somebody, but you were so negligent in your actions. You know, I was driving 100 miles down a residential street. I didn't know he was going to come out in front of me. Well, that's what we would call negligent manslaughter. You didn't set out to kill someone, but your actions were so negligent that you're going to be punished with something that is merely accidental through some sort of ordinary activity. I was driving 15 miles an hour down a residential street, and something happened, right? And we do have those kinds of allowances in Scripture, right? We have the story of the goring ox. Now, in the story of of the goring ox, there is an advancement to the punishment if it's negligent rather than if it's ignorant. If you didn't know your ox was wont to gore, and he got out and killed someone, you were not chargeable. But if it can be testified that you knew your ox was dangerous... And didn't keep him in. Then it's negligence and there's a greater punishment for that. So those degrees of punishment for degrees of crime are certainly scriptural. Okay, so here then we have what's called uh, an accidental killing. And so the example that's given is good for all kinds of different activities that might happen. You're in the woods. You and your neighbor are going to cut down a bunch of wood and split the proceeds of your labors, right? You're going to pool your labor. Right? Maybe he's got the, the, the ox and the cart and you've got the axe. And so you pool your tools and your labor and your efforts and so on. You head out into the forest and you make a chop with your axe and it may be that your axe head slips off and then you've just made your axe head a projectile on the end of a stick with like a slingshot action and it hits your neighbor in his chest or in his head and it kills him. And what happens then is you're chargeable with ending someone's life without process, even though it's an accident, it's still a strike at the image of God because all men are created in God's image. And so your life is about to be horribly interrupted. You don't, go, you don't get to go on as, oh, let's let bygones be bygones. <laughs> I didn't mean it. This is God's stroke of providence against you Right? Because nothing happens outside of his purview. And so for some reason it may not be known to you, you have killed someone accidentally, and your life is about to change forever. All right. So there's a difference then that is placed in this passage between that kind of killing, where the day before you go out with your neighbor in the local town square. You're you're heard saying things like that guy's a no count. I've never liked him. I hate him. Uh, he ought to die. And then you go out into the woods with him. Uh, you don't get to claim, oh, I slipped with my axe head at that point. You've laid the groundwork for the um, the conviction of murder at that point, and the murderer is never to be sheltered in the city of refuge. Many of these cities were controlled by Levites. But notice also there are several things here that speak to the justice and mercy of God. So you have killed someone accidentally. The law is going to be after you. You have a place you can go for protection. You're not left exposed. This is called the city of refuge. So you come to the city of refuge, you knock on the gate, they let you in. And, but that's not the only thing that happens. There's a trial that is to take place. Whether or not you have hated the man in time past in your heart, whether that can be testified to, whether there are witnesses that heard you speak in certain ways and so on. If you, if you um, lay in wait for him, and that term lay in wait, that is still used on our law books today. Right? Uh, there was a time when Western law was at least in some sense based uh, in the Bible. Okay, so uh, this place of refuge then, and although it's not said here, there are other places in Scripture that, that, that bring to bear on this passage. Uh, the man was to stay there if it was an accidental killing. He was to stay there until the death of the high priest. And then he could go free. And most Old Testament scholars are agreed that this was a type of Christ. That the death of the high priest represented the death of Jesus Christ for sinners. And so then this accidental Uh, guilt was removed from him and he could go home there's another thing said about this passage and we talk about a man that is called the avenger of blood as we heard a few weeks ago the word avenger is not the typical word that we would think of when we hear avenger it's actually the word goel the redeemer of blood because when that man's blood is shed, it, there, there must be redemption paid for it. Who is the Goel? Who is the Redeemer of blood? We think of him, in, don't we, in the book of Ruth as the near kinsman, or the kinsman Redeemer, as we've all heard that, that, that phrase used. Now, I want to make sure that we understand that, yes, this is probably a relative but he is not a relative that is taking up a sort of family cause on his own. I consider him to be more like someone who is deputized as, uh, as the relative of the man that was slain by the civil authorities. He doesn't go out in a vigilante kind of understanding. That's never provided for in Scripture. And although there, are, there, are, th- th- there is not specific... Uh, legislation or pointing to that in scripture, we can, I think, reason from the way God does his justice throughout the scriptures to understand that this man is simply, this is not simply a family grudge that is being settled here. This is something that is done under the color of law. And so this man, this revenger, or if you will, redeemer of blood, sets out to redeem the blood of his slain relative and so he's the one that brings suit in the city of refuge and then there is a trial that is undertaken and when that trial is done the judgment is exacted in one way or, or other depending on the statement of the judges if the judges believe that it was an accident then the man is relegated to living in the city of of, of refuge until the death of the high priest and if it if it is reckoned to be an intentional murder then he is delivered into the hand of the slayer under the color of law, and he's taken out and killed. And he's taken out and killed because um, uh, the the blood of the innocent person, like it did in Genesis chapter 4, cries out to the Lord from the ground. Uh, The Lord will say in the book of Deuteronomy that there's only one way to cleanse the land of innocent blood, and that is by the blood of the of the man that shed the innocent blood genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 right the lord provides for capital punishment for a striking against his image whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of god made he man so those uh well-meaning but horribly misguided individuals today who would say that uh that capital punishment is merely killing upon killing, they're horribly confused. God has spoken as to as to what the proper uh, punishment for the crime of murder is. Uh, and there's something else that is put here. And this is perhaps difficult for our sensibilities in this modern age. But notice what it says in verse 13. Thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt... Put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, notice, that it may go well with thee. We may think that we're exercising a sort of kind pity if we do not put away the innocent blood, if we let him go, although he is guilty of murder. But what we're actually doing at that point is we're bringing judgment upon the land that we live in ourselves. It's not really pity to let the one man go that the rest of the nation will begin to suffer under God's displeasure. Right? And so that's something we have to remember. That that there is a a greater judgment that falls upon the many if that one isn't justly punished. That's a hard thing for us. I get that. But it is necessary and it is true. Alright, verse 14 then. Oh, one more thing in this first section that runs down through verse 13. And that is that the Lord gives them hope in this, doesn't he? He says that when you get Canaan land, you're going to put three cities together for the, as the cities of refuge. But you're also to remember that I said I would bless you beyond Canaan. Remember my original word to Abraham, that it was from the great sea to the Euphrates. And so when that happens, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God... And I give you all that land, then you can put three more cities out there. Because access to those cities is supposed to be good and easy. You are to maintain the roads that lead into those cities. And you are to maintain um, a way to those cities so that the slayer can flee and and, and the revenger can flee both. In other words, if you don't have access to the court, you don't have justice. Right? And so, note the wisdom of God in this that not only did they have the cities, but they were also to maintain the ways to those cities so that everyone had access to this proper judgment. Very, very important stuff here. There are a lot of principles we could draw out of that for civil justice, proper civil justice, not what passes for it today. Okay. Verse 14 Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark. Children, what I want you to understand is that, and you, you might be able to find this in, in the house where you live. Some of these are still there, although they end up getting buried a few inches deep. But uh, uh, I used to work with a, with a man that was a good friend of mine. He was a surveyor. What does a surveyor do? It's his job to go find boundary lines. Why are boundary lines important? Well, let's say you want to build a fence on your land. And you end up building a fence on your neighbor's land instead. And he says to you, you got to take that down. No, I don't. It's my fence. I built it. Yeah, but you built it on my land. And so you have the surveyor out, and he runs the line, and oh, you built it on his land, right? So what have you done? You've, you've, you've essentially stolen land for, for, from your neighbor to build a fence on. And so he comes out, and and he finds the old boundary markers, and he looks at the legal description that is kept back at the county, and he figures out those boundary lines. And those boundary lines will be will be laid out. You don't see a you know a line painted on the ground because that won't last. But what they'll do is they'll put a stone marker or a pipe marker or something like that at the corners that you can draw straight lines to. And every now and then you'll be able to see one of those. Sometimes they're a little deep and that's why surveyors often carry metal detectors with them so they can find them if they're you know, eight, six or eight inches deep in the ground. They can dig them up. They can find the old marker. Now, if you move that marker, that's, in, in essence, stealing because you move that marker away from your house toward your neighbor's house, and what are you doing? You're taking his land. So if you're moving your neighbor's landmark, you're reducing his capacity... In land that means you're striking against not only his livelihood but against his property and that's theft and so you're commanded here in verse 14 not to remove your neighbor's landmark which they of old time have set in thine inheritance which thou shalt inherit in the land that the lord thy god giveth thee to possess it so one verse there and then in verse 15 through the end of the chapter we're we're going to talk about the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, and the ninth commandment. All of those are are bound up on this with a special emphasis on the ninth commandment and testifying. Do you remember the sermon that we preached a few weeks back on First John chapter five, verses seven and eight? And we talked about the three witnesses of heaven and the three witnesses upon earth. And we saw how important John understood this, uh, or how important. John's understanding was of the, uh, of the concept of witness-bearing, right? It's in his gospel, it's in his epistle, and so on. And it's in the book of Revelation where you have the two witnesses, and so on. Witness-bearing is very important, children. We must learn to speak the truth at all times. And so the Lord uh, here provides for, uh, an impetus for speaking the truth. And what's that impetus? What is that impetus? Well, two things. The first thing is that we cannot receive an accusation based on one witness alone. Beloved, let me remind you of something here. If you put yourself in a situation where one person's accusation can be believable, especially, let's say, with regard to your modesty and chastity, You have entered into a very dangerous situation. Uh, We remember Governor Mike Pence. We use him a lot for this illustration. He said, I don't go out to lunch with with, with, with anybody of the opposite sex. I don't do that unless my wife is there. Of course, the media excoriated him for that. Why? Well, because they want to get over on people. They want to have that one witness accusation, obviously. That's how they get information out of people. Silly. Mr. Pence had a very wise policy there. He may not have other wise policies. We could debate that. But that's a wise policy. A very wise policy. We don't want to put ourselves in a situation of compromise, especially in today's court of public opinion where one witness normally is judge, jury, and, can I say, executioner. So protect your reputation, by making sure that you're never put in a position where one person's accusation might obtain. Let them, make the accus- let them make the accusation and then bring your other witnesses to vindicate your good name. That's the first point. The second point here is don't ever bring a false accusation. We have a provision in our denomination in the book of church order. And we say exactly what Deuteronomy 19 says. Uh, 26 and following says that if you bring an accusation against your brother or sister in any church court and it is a false accusation you will be punished with the punishment that you thought to bring upon your brother or sister. This is what we call legal deterrent. right? And what does it say here? All Israel shall hear and fear and do no such wickedness. So with regard to witness-bearing then, we need two witnesses. And this is one of those instances where someone will come to you and they'll say, Do you know what so-and-so did to me? And you'll say, Well, have you talked to so-and-so? Why are you talking to me? Why am I hearing this? Uh, Are you asking me to come and be a witness with you when you go to confront them? I can help you with that. If not, please don't continue. Right? Don't bring... A one person accusation against anyone. Don't put yourself in that position. Don't put yourself in that position where you have to be the only witness. Because if you come to this session, we won't receive it. We need two witnesses, beloved. And the Bible makes this clear from Deuteronomy to Revelation. Now we may investigate, but it is not actionable. It is not actionable with only one witness. So keep yourselves in that mindset. Keep yourselves in that kind of context and you will avoid the false accusations and the ruining unnecessarily of your own reputation. Right? Okay. With that then let's stand and continue.